Amen. Ah, that was good. I hope your soul was strengthened, mine was, through that time of worship. Exodus chapter 1. The story of the Exodus, a word that means the way out or the road out, departure, exit. As I said the last couple of weeks, I believe it is the most profound and significant story in the Old Testament, the story of the Exodus. And I think it's very applicable to us today for many reasons, but one I want to remind us of is that each of us as New Testament Christians, we've also experienced a new Exodus, if you will. God took his people in the Old Testament from Egypt to the promised land. God has taken us and delivered us from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son. That's an exodus. And he chose one man to be the deliverer in both cases. Moses in the book of Exodus, Jesus in our case. In both cases, He took a group of people who were oppressed and enslaved and he brought them out to dignity and honor. And in both cases, in both exoduses, he established a relationship with these people that would last forever. Very similar similar between the old exodus and the exodus, if you will, that we have experienced. Before we get into Exodus chapter 1, keep your finger there, though, and I want to go back to Genesis 15 for just a moment because I want us to just touch on these couple of verses that remind us that God was already there hundreds of years before this all took place, and that should strengthen our soul as well. Genesis 15. Look at verse 13 and 14. Way back when God is calling Abram. It says in verse 13 of Genesis 15, the Lord said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign country. They will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years, but I will execute judgment on the nation that they will serve. Afterward, they will come out with many possessions. The reason I wanted to start there is it is a reminder to us, just like in our lives, God knows the future. God knows the intimate details of the future, of nations, of groups of people, and even of us as individuals. He knows what's going to take place in our lives next week, next month, next year, the next 10 years, the next 50 years. He knows. He knows. And we can trust him because what he will be doing in the present is preparing us and getting us fit for what he knows and he alone knows is coming in the future. So be strengthened even before we get into the book of Exodus tonight that we serve a God, we know a God personally, we are in relationship with a God 
who knows the future and as we've just sung about, will be faithful to us now, preparing us for what he knows is coming in the future. So let's go back to Exodus chapter 1. In the first six verses, dealing with naming the brothers, if you will, of Joseph, the sons of Jacob. Why does Exodus start out that way? Because this background in these first six verses makes clear that Exodus is a continuation of the Genesis story. These are the fulfillments of the promises God made to his people back in the book of Genesis, and now he is fulfilling those promises to his people here in Exodus. That's why it starts out with, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who entered Egypt. Each man with his household entered with Jacob, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All the people who were directly descended from Jacob numbered 70, but Joseph was already in Egypt, and in time, Joseph and his brothers and all the generation died. Notice these four words. In time, all died. God buries his workers, but never his work. And God's promises are just as true and trustworthy then as they were when God made them. And that's why you read, like in the book of Hebrews, that these all died in faith, looking ahead to the promises that God had yet to fulfill. And yet, as we've learned in the last couple chapters of Genesis, just by the burial instructions of both Jacob and Joseph, they knew that God would fulfill those promises and take his people from Egypt back to Canaan because God's will for his people was never to leave them in Egypt. It was always beyond Egypt. And I want us to be mindful of that as well. We can have an Egypt in our life, if you will, an Egypt experience, something that, that is holding or keeping us back or, or something that, that we have gotten comfortable in or acquainted with to where we're just sort of stuck there. And God may also in this study be saying to us, I never intended for you to stay in Egypt. I want you to get up and begin to move with me and trust me that I can bring you out of your Egypt, whatever your Egypt is, that I can deliver you, that I can release you, that I can set you free from whatever that Egypt is that is holding you back from moving forward to the promised land because in order for them to go to the promised land, the first step was leaving Egypt. They could make no progress toward the promised land as long as they were in Egypt. They had to be willing to leave Egypt, and only God could deliver them from Egypt. Many Christians have their own, again, Egypt experience. They're stuck in something. They're stuck somewhere. It's like quicksand. It keeps pulling them down, and they're making no headway towards the ultimate place that God has for them. And God wants to encourage you tonight, I can deliver you from your Egypt and set you free. 
on the path to what I have for you. Because my plan is never to leave his people in Egypt. Verse 7. The Israelites, however, were fruitful, increasing greatly, multiplying, becoming extremely strong so that the land was filled with them. They were growing. They were abounding. They were becoming numerous. They were powerful in sheer numbers. In fact, the language that is used here was used in Moses' day to speak of the swarming of insects. Basically, God is saying, did I not fulfill my first promise in saying that I would take you and that I would begin to grow you, and that's exactly what's happened. And don't you recognize this language in verse 7? Isn't this exactly what God even said all the way back in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve? Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And did not God say this same thing to Noah when he got off the ark? And did not God promise that this is what he would fulfill to Abram when he gave Abram that promise? This language, again, is the thread that goes back to Genesis and we pick it up here because one of the other things, again, that God wants to remind us of by Exodus being a continuation of Genesis is that's the way it is for all of us. That, that we are, again, part of something much bigger than ourselves, and we're just part of that link somewhere along the chain. But who we are and what we are in some regards is, is because of who came before us. We could all say that to a point. All of us in some way are who we are or what we are because of those who were before us. And you and I need to be mindful of that because one day when we pass, those who come after us are going to be in some way what we have left behind, you see. And so God is also making that point here in the first couple of verses of the book of Exodus. Now, verse 8. Then a new king. And I believe that this was at least 100 years after Joseph had died. A new king who did not know about Joseph. It doesn't mean that there wasn't any record of Joseph in Egypt. Oh, my goodness. I mean, what Joseph did to save all those people, that great drought, that severe famine that went through the land that lasted for seven years and all the grain... That was all recorded in Egyptian history, so it wasn't like it wasn't there to be referenced or referred to, but when it says he did not know about Joseph, it just simply meant that the, the person of Joseph or the memory of Joseph no longer affected or influenced him. See, we, we can know about something in our head and yet it not influence or affect us in any way. And so this pharaoh comes along and basically this long legacy and this long shadow that had existed for a very long time that Joseph had left in Egypt. And think about it. He was a Hebrew slave. A Hebrew slave. And yet God used him like he did Daniel in Babylon to affect the most powerful nation on earth at that time 
for many, many, many subsequent generations. But a new king, Pharaoh, who did not know Joseph, came to power over Egypt. And he says to his people, look at the Israelite people, more numerous and stronger than we are, at least in numbers. Come, let's deal wisely. The word means shrewdly or craftily with them. It is a word that is used to describe the serpent in Genesis 3. Otherwise, they will continue to multiply, and if war breaks out, it's sort of like, what if? What if they will ally themselves with our enemies and fight against us and leave the country? So here is a man, Pharaoh, still ruling over the most powerful nation on the planet, and you're noticing something, right? He's looking around at all these swarms of Israelites, and he's starting to get a little insecure, a little fearful. In fact, what we're going to see now is that the decisions that he makes from this moment on are all driven by fear. It is one of the reasons, because when you see the kind of decisions that this man makes because of fear, you then begin to understand a little bit more of why God never wants his people to be driven, motivated, inspired, or influenced in their decision-making by fear, but by faith. Because even before we get into this, let me say this. What you're going to see is that fear can cause us to make decisions that are just inhuman, cruel, brutal, ugly, hateful. I mean, fear can just bring out the absolute worst in a human being. And can I say that in the last couple of years around the world, we continue to see that a lot of the decisions and a lot of the actions of people, even those who claim to be people of God, are decisions that are made based on fear rather than faith, and the way they are treating other people becomes very ugly, very brutal, very hateful, and it's all driven by fear. Let's look at what Pharaoh's decisions were based upon fear. First, they put foremen. This is where the slavery of, Egypt, or of Israel began. Up to this point, they were not slaves. It was only when Pharaoh became afraid of all these Israelites that they began to oppress them and enslave them. So they put foremen over the Israelites to oppress them with hard labor, literally to beat them down and work them to death. That was the first strategy. Let's beat these people down and let's work them to death. As a result, they built two storehouse cities, Pithom and Ramesses for Pharaoh. But now notice verse 12. To me, this is the key verse of the whole chapter. Because what this teaches us 
is that our God cannot be thwarted. God, his will, his plan, his purposes, and even his people cannot be thwarted. It's one of the reasons why Jesus said, I will build my church even at the very gates of hell and it won't prevail against my church because I cannot be thwarted. The more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they tried to beat them down, the more the Israelites multiplied and spread. Hard times cannot erase the promises of God. You and I may go through hard times, but those hard times do not erase the promises of God. As we've sung about tonight, God is faithful. God is trustworthy. God is reliable. God is dependable. And listen, God's promises are more powerful than Pharaoh's plan. Even the most powerful man on planet Earth, leading the most powerful nation, could not subdue the people of God no matter what he tried to do because God would not allow it. And I want us to take that same principle and I want us to live every day from that same principle. That the more maybe the world tries to beat you down, the more maybe someone tries to beat you down and put you under, the more God can cause you to rise. The stronger you can become. The, the more of that diamond through that pressure and through that heat you and I can become. The more that they try to pile on, the more we're just going to continue to thrive and rise above our circumstances. Think about how this parallels with the book of Acts and the story of the early church. The more they persecuted the church, the more the church grew. In fact, if you've never read uh, Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's a book that you have to sort of be in a certain place to read it. But if you're into that kind of stuff, I, I'd encourage you to read it sometime. But one of the things that that book reminds us of is that the blood of the martyrs was the seed of the church. The more people gave up their lives and surrendered to the Lord and were killed and martyred, the more the church thrived and grew. That's the story of Exodus. That's the story of Acts. In fact, later on in the book of Acts, in Acts chapter 5, remember they're persecuting the church and this Pharisee, Gamaliel, steps up in the midst of all these religious leaders and he says, guys, guys, wait a minute. He said, let's, let's pause for a moment. He says, if, if this thing that we're persecuting right now, if this is of men, it will stop on its own. It will come to nothing on its own. But if it's of God, then none of us can stop it. None of us can stop it. Think about it. And the Bible says in Acts 5, they all fell silent. It's like, yeah, you're right. Who can stop God? God's unstoppable. That's exactly what verse 12 is saying. God was with his people. And the more 
that Pharaoh and the Egyptians oppressed them and tried to beat them down and work them to death, the more they rose above their circumstances and the more they increased and grew. Notice then, as a result, the Egyptians loathed the Israelites, abhorred them. I mean, we know from the book of Genesis, they already sort of loathed them. Why? Because they were shepherds. Remember, the Egyptians thought that shepherds were like lowlifes. That's why they left them out there in Goshen. You know, the Egyptians were refined. And, and what the Israelites did for a living and all of that, they, they, they looked down upon them. You know, they were less than. And, and, and here the Egyptians are, this people that thinks they're better than the Israelites, and the more that they do to them to try to, you know, bring them under, the more they rise. It's like that story I shared with you a while ago about the old farmer and this old donkey that he wanted to get rid of, and he goes out and he digs this hole and he throws that old donkey in there and he wants to cover him with dirt. And that old donkey wasn't going down. That old donkey just kept shaking off the dirt and stepping him up and using the dirt that the farmer was using to bury him just to keep stepping up until he could step up out of the hole. That's, that's the kind of mentality God wants us to have as his people. The more somebody or something tries to throw dirt on you, just shake it off and step up. Shake it off and step up. The more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. I, I hope that that phrase of that verse just is seared into our hearts and minds because there are many days where we can be discouraged and we can think that when we're going through hard times God doesn't notice and God's promises maybe are erased during those hard times no no way in fact if you go over to chapter 3 real quick to verse 7 notice the Lord said to Moses I've surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt I I know what's going on. I'm perfectly aware of it. And yet I know, just like the Israelites, when you and I are going through really hard, difficult times, many times we get to a bad place where we think God doesn't care, he doesn't see, he doesn't notice, uh, his promises, where are they? And in the book of Exodus chapter 1 is a reminder, and we're going to see this throughout the book, no, God's faithful. God is there with his people. Yes, he hasn't taken the oppression or the pressure away, but he's building his people stronger from the inside out. And he's building a nation of people who will be strong. They will be diamonds in his hand. That's what he's looking for, right? Verse 13, they made the Israelites serve rigorously, harshly, severe, severely, if you will. They made their lives bitter, by hard service, by back-breaking labor with mortar and bricks and by all kinds of service in the fields. Every kind of service the Israelites were required to do was rigorous. It was harsh. It was severe. Back-breaking. They were trying to break the Israelites, and it didn't work. So Pharaoh's first plan didn't work. So now, fear, right? That, that drove him to that decision. Now look at fear driving him to the next decision. When plan A doesn't work, here's plan B, verse 15. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, 
one of whom was named Sipra and the other Pua, when you assist the Hebrew women in childbirth, observe it at the delivery. If it is a son, kill him. If it is a daughter, she may live. We go from trying to oppress and beat them down to now we're going to kill them. Now think about this too, how fear, a lot of times because we're making decisions out of fear, isn't even logical, it doesn't even make sense. Did not Pharaoh want men especially to be slaves so that they could build these cities and stuff? So if he kills all the males, where's that leave him with all this slave labor? You see, when fear gets into our heads and we begin to make, it's irrational. Fear can drive us to make very irrational decisions, decisions that actually backfire on us because it's not clear. Our fear consumes us, and that's exactly what was happening with Pharaoh here. All right, plan A doesn't work. Let's kill the males. Very familiar, right? Again, New Testament equivalent. When Jesus was born, Herod, out of fear, said, I'm going to kill all the firstborn males in Israel. See, notice what fear is doing here. Even to those in leadership and in power. But the midwives, verse 17, feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them. They let the boys live. These two women, man, they stepped up. They had a healthy respect and reverence for God. They were standing in awe of no one or nothing but God. And their reverence for life sprang from their reverence for God, the life giver. And they said, Pharaoh, you're not the ultimate authority in our life. Our God is. And we're not going to do what you ask us to do. That took a lot of courage. A lot of courage to do what they did. Now, we need to take a moment. The Bible certainly teaches us as Christians even, that we are to obey those in authority over us. And it is very important that we do that. But there will maybe be a time where someone in authority over us asks us to do something that is against the nature and the will of God. And it is then and only then do we have, if you will, God's permission to not obey the authority over us and obey him instead? Because if that is the case, then like here, God will provide and God will protect us as we step out in faith and courage and do the right thing. And that's exactly what these Hebrew midwives did. In fact, I'm getting a little ahead of myself but I, I want to give a shout out to the gals in the room and the gals who are watching tonight. Because one of the things that you realize here in just the first couple chapters of Exodus is how the women saved the day. These two midwives then go a little bit further in the story. 
You've got Moses' mother and Moses' sister. And then you come even to Pharaoh's daughter who pulled Moses out. Those five women play a huge role in the first couple chapters of Exodus in being part of God's plan of deliverance of his people. If those five women don't step up, things could be very different. So we applaud men of courage and strength, but we need to applaud women of courage and strength as well. In fact, I find it interesting that these women, these lowlights, I mean, first of all, they're Israelites, they're slaves, and they're women in the ancient world. So in that culture, they're nobody. Do you know they, they have names? We know their names. Their names are in the word of God forever. You know why? Because God says the names of the righteous will live forever. And yet here's Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the ruler of the most powerful nation on the planet at that time and the head of that nation. We don't have his name. We don't know the name of Pharaoh. But we know the name of these two Hebrew midwives. You know what that tells me? God honored them in including their names in the word of God. He honors people of faith and courage who will trust him and step out to do the right thing, even sometimes if it's the hard thing. Then the king of Egypt. Now, I believe time passed because you know, he can't keep track of everything that's going on. He had to let this play out for a while. I think maybe even years passed. And the leadership of Egypt was realizing, um, seems like this ain't working. Well, that's because it's not. That's because the Israelites keep having babies. And we're not doing anything about it. So verse 18, the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the boys live? I love the midwives' answer. They said to Pharaoh, well, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for the Hebrew women are vigorous. They give birth before the midwife gets to them. And you know what? I don't believe they're lying. I believe they're telling the truth. In, in other words, and you gals know this way better than us men, I think what the midwives were saying is that God at this time in history blessed all the Israelite women who were having children with quick and easy births. Now we know, obviously, not all women have quick and easy births. So in contrast to that, what I believe was that the Egyptian women had a very hard time giving birth, but the Israelite women had a very easy, quick birth, and they simply were popping out kids before they could get to them. <laughs> so God, notice, rewarded and blessed the midwives, which is what God always does to those who are faithful to him and trust him and step out in courage for him. He treated the midwives well, and the people multiplied and became very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he made households for them. This was not, not done. Midwives never had families. They, they lived their whole lives to bring other people families, if you will, but they did not have households or families. 
God said, nope, nope, they're having families. They're having households. And God blessed them and rewarded them again for, in a sense, standing up to Pharaoh. All right, plan A didn't work. Plan B didn't work. Guess what? He's still fearful. Now he goes to the extreme to plan C. Now he bypasses the Israelites because he's probably thinking, I can't trust the Israelites to kill the Israelites. So now I'm going to go to my own people and say, you help me. Let's exterminate the Israelites. So Pharaoh commanded all his people, verse 22, all sons that are born you must throw into the river, but all daughters you may let live. See, there is nothing new under the sun, according to the book of Ecclesiastes. Hitler was not the first person on earth to try to exterminate the Israelites. Pharaoh and the Egyptians were the first people to try to exterminate the Israelites. Out of fear. Out of fear. Everything that... Pharaoh and the Egyptians did to the Israelites was driven by fear. And that's why God calls his people to faith. Because fear destroys. Fear destroys those who are driven by it as well as those that their fear is directed towards. Faith builds up. Fear tears down. And that's exactly what Pharaoh and the Egyptians were doing to the Israelites. But again, the more the Egyptians oppressed them, the more they multiplied and spread. Well, a couple other things before we wrap up tonight. Notice where they threw or were to throw the sons of the Israelites into the river. Well, that river is the Nile River. And and one of the reasons why they were throwing them into the Nile River is that the Nile River was also sort of considered by the Egyptians a god, a life giver. And so by throwing the children into the river, it was like they in some way were trying to uh, appease their conscience or absolve their conscience of what they were doing and basically saying, well, the the gods did this. The, the, God, the, the Nile God took care of that. If, if the Nile God let him live, then that was, if he didn't, you know, but it's on them. It, it's on the, the gods. But there's also this very pragmatic thing of they literally were treating these young boys like trash, throwing them into the river, letting them being swept away, sort of out of sight, out of mind, swept downstream. We, we don't see them. They're, they don't exist as if they don't exist. I mean, think about it. Think what they were doing here. They were literally going around finding little Israelite boy babies and throwing them into the Nile River and killing them. That was their answer to the growth of the Israelites. And yet... Here again, notice the three words in verse 22, into the river. Note that. Because in chapter 2, guess what? 
God has the last word. It is out of that very river that the deliverer is going to come. God, in a sense, is saying, you're using that river for death. I'm going to use that river for deliverance. And then the God of justice, the God who is just, he also uses water later on, doesn't he? That when Pharaoh changes his mind and gathers up his army and chases after Moses and the people of Israel after they left Egypt, and they come to the Red Sea, and God allows his people to pass through the midst of the Red Sea, when Pharaoh's army begins to chase them, God brings that water down on the Egyptian army. And the Egyptian army all perishes in that water. God says, I have the last word. And you're not going to treat my people that way without consequences. Because I'm a just God. You used water to kill my people. I will use that very same water to destroy and judge you. Now, I want us to apply Exodus chapter 1 in this way for just a moment, too, before we wrap this up. We are in the midst, as the people of God here at the Oasis, in a real season of growth. We are growing numerically. We are growing spiritually. And can I tell you, we may not have a Pharaoh or Egypt to contend with, but we have a spiritual enemy. And our spiritual enemy does not like the fact that we are growing. And I know that many of you can feel it because many of you are feeling the attack of the enemy maybe upon you or your family in some way. And I just want to say as the pastor, we just need to be aware. We don't need to be fearful because greater is he who is in us than he who's in the world. But we need to be aware that when you and I are part of God growing something, then we're also going to feel the, the wrath, if you will, of our spiritual enemy. He's going to do everything he can to dissuade us, discourage us, distract us, and, and get us off track from continuing to move ahead with God. And we've got to be in the mindset that we are going to follow God no matter what the enemy throws at us. And the more he tries to beat us down, the more we're just going to follow God and continue to rise above the circumstances, and we're just going to continue to grow. We're not going to let the enemy have the last word. God made sure that his people knew throughout history that Pharaoh and the Egyptians, even though they were most powerful on earth, that there was one more powerful than them, and he sat on his throne in heaven. And God wants to remind his people today of that same thing. I don't care what enemies he's saying to his people today, you face. They are not greater than me. Even all of them put together aren't greater than me. I cannot be thwarted in any way. And the more they try to beat you down the more you can rise in me. So let's take his promises, remembering 
that hard times never erase the promises of God. Hard times never are times where God doesn't have his eyes upon us. He said, I've seen the affliction of my people in Egypt, and God is seeing what you and I are going through right now. He is very well aware of it, and we just need to trust him and lean into him and continue to move forward with him in the days ahead. Father, we thank you tonight that the study tonight sort of sets up now the coming of Moses and this exciting story of your deliverance of your people. A people, God, that you delivered so that they could worship you, so that they could be worshipers. Because, Lord, you alone are worthy of worship. That's why the very first command you gave to Moses in the Ten Commandments was, my people shall have no other gods before me. And God, you say the same thing to your people today. I am to be worshipped by my people because I alone am worthy of worship. God, may we as your people worship you and follow you no matter what the cost. Give us the courage. Give us the faith. Give us the trust that we need in you in the times in which we live. Because like the story of Exodus, you may not take the pressures away, but you will provide the inner strength that we need to our soul to be able to withstand the pressure and continue to rise. Thank you, God, for that promise. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless. We'll see you next week.